The time is still now. Volume 7, episode 123. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Well, I say it every year. I feel like when we get to this time, I look back and I say, well, that was a really quick year. I blinked. It was the summer Then it was Labor Day, Thanksgiving, the holidays, you know the rest. And here we are in January of another year. 2022 had its own share of craziness. But however it went for all of you, I do sincerely hope that 2023 is a very healthy, happy, and successful one for all of you, both personally and professionally. This episode today starts our seventh season of this Employment Law Now podcast, the seventh year and the 123rd episode, and I can't express enough how appreciative I am of all of you for listening. Whether you've listened to one episode, whether you've listened to all of them, or somewhere in between, I can't thank you enough for all of the great feedback, all of the constructive feedback, and certainly for spending a few minutes uh, of your own valuable time listening to these episodes. I will continue to spend this new year keeping you up to date on developments and trends in the labor and employment world, and also give you some of the insight from terrific guests out of both the private and the government arenas representatives from the corporate world as well as colleagues of mine here at Cozen O'Connor to try to break these things down for you, uh, make them a little bit more uh, easy to understand, eliminate some of the legalese, and most importantly, try to tell you why these things are important and why you should be thinking about them and bringing them back to your organizations. So today is part one of a two-part start to 2023, where I want to just give you a list of some of the biggest labor and employment issues that I think you should be aware of as we start the new year. However, for this part one today, I am devoting the entire episode to one issue, to one of the biggest developments we have probably seen in a long time, the potential end of non-compete agreements as we know it. You know, we've talked for years, all of you have talked for years about how California has historically prohibited non-compete agreements. And we have seen some developments in the area outside of California over the past few years. President Obama, during his administration, brought a call to arms to talk about this issue of non-compete agreements and how states should get into the business and start looking at this issue and regulating the issue more. President Biden has 
followed up with that and done the same over the course of his administration lately. And over the past three, four, five years, we have in fact seen states get into the business of regulating non-compete agreements. Massachusetts, Illinois, Washington, D.C., and other state and local governments have enacted or proposed legislation. We have seen attorneys general and various state agencies start talking about how we are going to either be looking to eliminate or looking to severely limit the ability of organizations to impose non-compete provisions at least on a good number of employees or positions within the organization. With that said, we dropped the ball on New Year's Eve and almost immediately after, on January 5th, 2023, we got a significant development from a federal agency. The EEOC? No. The NLRB? No. The Department of Labor? No. OSHA? No. Those are the ones that seem to be getting all of the attention, but there is one federal agency that has probably been a little envious of all of the attention given to those Mount Rushmore of federal agencies. So here comes the Federal Trade Commission, the United States Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, making news to start off 2023 with a proposed rule. And again, to be very clear, we are talking about the FTC issuing a notice of proposed rulemaking. There is no final rule or regulation. There is nothing that is effective now or effective uh, on any date certain at the moment. But this is a critical point in time, nevertheless, for non-compete agreements. So let me help break it down a little bit and summarize what was done and what it means for you and your organization. So the FTC has started out by stating their fundamental premise, which is, quote, about one in five American workers, approximately 30 million people, are bound by a non-compete clause and are thus restricted from pursuing better employment opportunities, end quote. And so using that as a fundamental premise, the FTC has offered a variety of statistics and statements as the rationale, as the support for this proposed rule that they have issued. The FTC believes that non-compete clauses significantly reduce workers' wages. The FTC believes that non-compete clauses stifle new businesses and new ideas, that they can exploit workers and hinder economic liberty, and that organizations have other ways beyond using non-compete agreements to protect the organization's trade secrets and other valuable investments in a manner that would be significantly less harmful to workers and consumers alike, according to the FTC. So what is this proposed rule that they have issued? Well, to put it very simply, it is to ban all non-competes for all types of workers by all employers in the country. Wow. Did you hear what I said? The proposed rule is to effectively ban the use of all non-competes 
for all workers by all employers. Now, I guess I could stop this episode right here, given the simplicity of that statement, but let me break it down a little bit further for you, tell you what exactly the rule says, exactly what it doesn't say, what the next steps are, and why this is so important to you. Now, I suppose if you don't use non-compete agreements, this may not directly impact you. On the other hand, even if you don't use non-compete agreements for your own workforce, you may be hiring workers in the future that are subject at the time to non-compete agreements. And so this may have an impact on the on the extent to which you need to analyze that situation before you hire somebody who is potentially subject to a non-compete agreement. So here we go. The FTC has taken the position that non-compete agreements are a form of unfair competition. And the proposed rule says the following. It is an unfair method of competition for an employer to do three things. One, enter into or attempt to enter into a non-compete clause with a worker. Two, to maintain a non-compete clause with a worker. Or three, represent to a worker that the worker is subject to a non-compete clause where the employer has no good faith basis to believe that the worker is subject to an enforceable non-compete clause. Now, it's important, as always, to look at the terms of art, the defined terms in that statement. So let's do that. First, who is an employer that's covered here? Well, basically, an employer is anybody. It's defined as any person that hires or contracts with a worker to work for that person. Pretty broad. On the flip side, who is defined as a worker that is getting the benefits of this? That too is defined pretty broadly. Worker means any natural person who works, whether paid or unpaid, for an employer. Period. Regardless of seniority, regardless of the type of position, regardless of the amount of wages or compensation that that individual gets, regardless of whether that individual even gets compensation. So this is afforded a benefit for employees, for independent contractors, for interns, for volunteers, and for sole proprietors who provide services to a client or customer. To be sure, the term worker here under this proposed rule does not include a franchisee in the context of a franchise or franchisee relationship. However, the term worker does include a person who works for that franchisee or franchisor. So it's pretty broad. Employers cannot enter into a non-compete clause with a worker defined just as broadly maintain a non-compete clause for such a worker or represent to that worker that they are subject to a non-compete clause that is otherwise unenforceable under this proposed rule. Next question, how do we define what a non-compete clause is? I would submit that it is defined just as broadly as the terms employer and worker were. A non-compete clause 
is a contractual term that seeks to prevent the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or from operating a business after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer. It doesn't talk about whether you're seeking employment from a competitor, somebody who does the same or similar business or not. Any provision that prevents the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or from operating a business after that worker's employment is ended, that is a non-compete clause. And the proposed rule doesn't stop there. It also takes the position that, hey, we're not just looking at provisions that on their face are referred to as non-compete clauses or on their face seem to be quite clearly a non-compete clause. We're also going to question other types of provisions that functionally act as a de facto non-compete clause. And in fact, the proposed rule from the FTC says just that. It says that the term non-compete clause includes a contractual term that is a de facto non-compete clause because it has the effect of prohibiting the worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or operating another business after the conclusion of that worker's employment. The proposed rule gives two types of examples of what might be considered functionally a de facto non-compete clause even if it is not on its face a non-compete clause. First, a non-disclosure agreement that is quote written so broadly that it effectively precludes the worker from working in the same field after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer end quote. And the second example of a de facto non-compete clause is some sort of contract that quote requires the worker to pay the employer or a third-party entity for training costs if the worker's employment terminates within a specified time period end quote well that's all well and good but you can imagine that as long as the FTC is focusing on this concept that you could have a prohibited provision that is not on its face a non-compete clause but functionally acts like one there are other types of agreements that might pose a problem to the FTC what about non-solicit clauses clauses where the employer is allowed to work wherever he or she wants but can't solicit either customers or clients or maybe current employees of the organization could those be written so broadly or in a manner that functionally they act or appear to be a de facto non-compete clause? What about stay bonuses or other types of consideration given? If not training costs per se, are there other types of provisions, other types of consideration given for uh, a non-compete related covenant that would violate this proposed rule even if on its face it is not referred to as a non-compete agreement. Those are questions that we don't have answers to, but what is clear is that this proposed rule is drafted quite broadly, both in its defined terms as well as in its prescriptions. And in fact, it goes further than just talking about prospective non-compete agreements. What about existing non-compete clauses, you ask? Well, 
There's an easy answer to that because the proposed rule speaks to that directly. There is a rescission requirement. So we're not going to get into, at least according to this proposed rule, whether there's any retroactive effect, retroactive impact to this rule. There is, in fact, a retroactive impact. An employer that entered into a non-compete clause with a worker prior to the compliance date for this proposed rule, when it becomes final, if it becomes final, quote, must rescind the non-compete clause no later than the compliance date, end quote. So it doesn't matter when you entered into a non-compete clause, even if you entered into one before the compliance date of any final rule by the FTC, that has to be rescinded. And not only do you have to rescind it, you have to make an announcement to the worker with whom you entered into that non-compete provision because there is a notice requirement under the proposed rule that says, quote, an employer that rescinds a non-compete clause must provide notice to the worker that the worker's non-compete clause is no longer in effect and may not be enforced against the worker, end quote. That notice has to be provided according to the proposed rule in an individualized communication. It must be provided either on paper or in some digital format, such as an email or text message, and the notice must be given to the worker within 45 days of rescinding that non-compete clause. And let's go one step further. The notice must not only be given to a worker who currently works for the employer, but the notice also must be given to a worker who formerly worked for the employer, provided, of course, that the employer has the worker's contact information readily available. So it's not just current employees with whom you entered into a non-compete agreement that you must now rescind. If you have a non-compete agreement, an open or existing non-compete agreement with an individual who is no longer even employed by your organization, you must not only rescind that, but you must give notice to that former employee that it is no longer in effect. Are there any exceptions to this proposed rule? There's only one. And it's strange because even though this is essentially an employment-related proposed rule, the one exception doesn't really have much, if anything, to do with the employment relationship. The one exception is that we are not going to proscribe non-compete clauses that are entered into by a person who is selling a business entity or otherwise disposing of all of that person's ownership interest in the business entity, or if that person is selling all or substantially all of a business entity's operating assets. That's the only exception in this proposed rule. From an enforcement standpoint, there is no private right of action established here. If there is a violation, the FTC would have to go after the violators. And so what is the process? What are the next steps? Well, the FTC has uh, provided a 60-day public comment period. And I implore all of you, either on your own as an organization or through a group or through a trade association, through representation, if you think that is appropriate, to provide comments. And after that 60-day period, assuming that the 60-day comment period is not otherwise extended, 
the FTC will marshal together all of the comments and it will do one of three things. It will either scrap the proposed rule completely, not likely that that will be the option selected, or it could ignore all the comments and issue a final rule based on the proposed rule as is, or it could modify based on the comments that were received and issue a revised rule to constitute the final rule. If and when a final rule is issued, compliance with that rule will be required as of 180 days after the date of publication. So essentially, you will have six months after any final rule is published to comply with the requirements, assuming a final rule is in fact published. Now that's a lot. And I guess all of that does build in an assumption that a final rule will not only be issued, but will be ultimately uh, enforceable. Because what you are likely to have at some point, and maybe even sooner than later, are legal challenges to the proposed rule. Those legal challenges will make their way through the court system, presumably ultimately to the United States Supreme Court. There are a whole host of arguments that could be made. Certainly, the arguments can be made as to the substance of the proposed rule, the blanket nature, the -the across-the-board nature of this type of rule, which doesn't look to exempt out or carve out any type of um, exceptions based on the senior nature of particular workers, the amount of wages that the worker gets as compensation, the type of business interests that might otherwise support certain types of non-compete provisions, some of the vagueness, some of the overbreath of some of the defined terms that I've just read to you. So there could be some substantive challenges, but perhaps more importantly, there are procedural challenges that we will likely see. Two of the bigger ones, number one is, does the FTC have authority to issue this type of rulemaking in the first place. The FTC has based its authority essentially on two different sections. Section 6 of the FTC Act and Section 5 of the FTC Act, the latter of which declares illegal various unfair methods of competition, and then the former of which essentially allows the FTC to prescribe rules which define with specificity those acts or practices which constitute unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. So the question of whether the FTC has authority is a significant one. The argument can be made, I think, and will be made, I suspect, that the FTC authorizes or the FTC Act authorizes the FTC to regulate unfair and deceptive practices, but it is silent and absent on the FTC's power to issue specific rules on unfair methods of competition like it is trying to now. So the question of the FTC's authority will be the subject, I believe, of legal challenge. The second one, the second 
area of challenge will be under this major questions doctrine. And you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, where have I heard that before, the major questions doctrine? Well, prior to the pandemic, I suspect many people, perhaps even most people, never even heard of the major questions doctrine. But if you're wondering where you heard that from, you may have heard it when we were talking in prior episodes about the OSHA vaccine or testing requirement. And even more recently, perhaps you might have heard that in the context of a challenge to an environmental regulation, a challenge to the EPA, where the Supreme Court started discussing this major questions doctrine and in the context of OSHA's vaccine or testing rule, invalidated that rule based in large part on the major questions doctrine. And remember, the major questions doctrine says essentially that where a statute will confer authority on an agency to regulate or to issue a rule on a particular topic, the court must ask whether Congress actually meant to confer the power on the agency that the agency is now trying to assert. If the issue is such a major question, Congress must have had to expressly give the right to the agency to regulate or issue a rule on that. And according to the recent United States Supreme Court decisions, some of the factors that will be looked at on this major questions doctrine is whether the particular matter at hand is of great political significance. And here we're talking about the regulation of non-compete agreements. Is that a matter of great political significance? By regulating that area, are you regulating a significant portion of the American economy? Are you intruding in an area by regulating non-competes? Are you intruding in an area that is the particular domain of state law? There was a fairly large dissent. And of course, the FTC issued this um, proposed rule along party lines. The Democratic majority issued this notice of proposed rulemaking, but it came with it a significant and extensive dissent by the Republican on the FTC, who believes that there will be meritorious challenges ultimately to this rule, particularly under this major questions doctrine. So what does all of this mean? Right now, right now, there is nothing that is banning, at least on the federal side, at least from the FTC, any non-compete agreements, either those you're planning to enter into or those you have already entered into. But there are really two takeaways here. Takeaway number one, you need to follow this because we need to see what happens both in terms of what the FTC does after the comment period is over, as well as what the courts do with any challenges to the FTC's action. But beyond that, there's a larger picture here. As I started this episode saying, we have been hearing and seeing a lot over the past few years in the non-compete world. Not necessarily something as broad as this, where you have the federal government attempting to simply eradicate non-competes across the board for everybody and by everybody, 
But you have seen states in addition to California, you have seen local governments starting to regulate this issue more and more. So depending on the jurisdiction you're in right now, if you are planning to enter into or impose a non-compete agreement, or if you are looking to hire an individual who claims to be subject to a non-compete agreement with a former employer, figure out what your jurisdiction currently says is permitted and is not permitted. There are additional states that are getting into the game and deciding whether to regulate non-compete and other types of restrictive covenants based on the premise that these are being abused, that the type of workers who are being forced to enter into these agreements are not protecting or serving any legitimate business interest. So we need to stay abreast of what's happening with this FTC proposed rule, and we need to continue to stay abreast to see what the federal government more generally, but what the other state and local governments are continuing to do in this area of non-compete agreements. And aren't you so glad that we are here to help you do that? We will continue to do that as more comes out on this FTC rule, particularly once the public comment period ends, we will continue to update you on this area. In the meantime, next week we will have part two of this two-part series to open up 2023 and talk about the labor and employment issues I think should be on your radar as we start a new year. I hope this was informative. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope all of you have a very healthy and happy and, as I said, successful new year personally and professionally. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.